The fourth lesson is from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My um, family and I have been on the West Coast for about 14 years now, and so I've pretty much jettisoned my southern accent, though it does come out from time to time, and I'll drop a fixin' to into the sermon, or maybe a Mike could, and you'll realize where my roots lie. Uh, I did grow up in Alabama, and it's a state that is famously religious about two things, Jesus and Fox News. I'm joking, that didn't exist when I was growing up. When I was growing up, uh, it was Jesus and football, and it still is that. And if you go to football games in the South, uh, whether they're college or high school, they often feel like church. They feel like worship experiences, and religion pervades everything in Alabama, particularly of a certain brand of Christianity. And I was generally pretty good about fitting in. I knew the brand. I knew how to wear it. I knew how to keep uh, the religious people in my life quite happy. And I considered myself a religious person. But there's another world that exists in Alabama, uh, and it's a bit of an underworld. But it existed for me outside of these specific moral and cultural and social guidelines that after a while I kind of felt to be a little bit constrictive and I wanted to try something out, something new out. And so I began to explore this world uh, beginning in high school. And that world involved football, it involved trying to be uh, at the center of things, which meant trying to be part of the crowd that was so-called popular, that, in, that all of the pretty people inhabited. Uh, I didn't really look like that, that I could belong to that, but I tried really hard, and I learned to live fairly adeptly, adeptly in two different worlds, in this moral, sort of law-abiding, upstanding, respectable church world, And then also in this other world that to me felt kind of punk, going back to our Punk God series, and there was the the skateboarding counterculture element of it, and there was also a lot of uh, behaviors that went along with being part of that crowd that the respectable crowd would not have considered to be kosher. And so I did 
my very best to keep those two worlds from ever intersecting. Now, I don't want to overly dramatize this because this conflict is fairly common to teenage life, but this sort of bifurcated uh, existence uh, really became just part of my personality. And I, looking back now and even at the time, it just felt like it became so deeply internalized. The ability to live in two different worlds and understand what those worlds needed from me and wanted from me and figuring out ways to meet those needs and meet those expectations. And I could move between them with relative ease, but it felt like I didn't really know who I was. I was losing a sense of self. My self was that person that could move easily and to have kind of a dual identity. And so in both places, I was developing this acuity, this acumen to uh, a lot of hiding. And it was very calculated hiding. And that will be very important to this story, uh, the hiding element. And alongside that sort of division in my personality, I had some psychological, neurological things, idiosyncrasies, I would say, that to a teenager were very confusing. And often embarrassing. There was some OCD type of behaviors and some motor kind of phonic tics that were going on that we would assign nowadays to being kind of mild Tourette's. Uh, And I've never really talked about this publicly before because I would sort of make these noises, but uh, they don't really show up in my daily life now and thankfully not in preaching. Um, But these are fairly common things, fairly common ailments. They're real kind of medical conditions that people have. I just thought they were weird. And so I became very accustomed and very adept at hiding them from everyone. I still kind of make these weird sounds from time to time, uh, mostly when I'm going to sleep, which thankfully Katie finds uh, cute and mildly endearing. Uh, which was just blew my mind when uh, I discovered that. And strangely, uh, these kind of vocal tics show up most when I'm running, uh, and so I always run alone. I was also worried all the time, and I would cry a lot, which goes against type for a southern man, especially one that plays football. And I was super nervous about every situation in life, particularly about saying the wrong thing in a group setting. So later I sought the comfort of a very introverted private job where that could never happen. Maybe being a pastor is sort of a weird attempt at exposure therapy, I don't know, but at times my generalized anxiety would sort of upscale into these acute full-scale panic attacks and shaking, hyperventilating, sweaty, and often they'd happen right before, later in life, uh, going on stage to preach, and it terrified me, and it was debilitating, but by then I kind of had some information and awareness and knowledge to understand what was going on, 
when you're a teenager and those things happen, you don't know what's going on, and it's terrifying. And so I hid that because I didn't want anyone to know. And I was also the classic underachieving student. Elementary school gave me this IQ test. They guess they did everyone. It's the one where you play with the little boxes and the, the uh, triangles and the puzzles, and then they tell you your IQ, and that's supposedly accurate. And I did that, and they stuck me in a gifted program, which was pretty bewildering to me and to my parents when later I made mediocre grades all through middle school and high school and was surprised when I got into a decent college. I couldn't sit still. I was fidgety, constantly daydreaming, constantly in a different world than whatever the teacher might be talking about. And my brain was just constantly spinning and churning. You know what that is, right? Because almost everyone has that these days, is ADHD. But back in the Bronze Age of the early 1980s, especially in Alabama, we didn't know what ADHD was. They weren't diagnosing that. You just had a lot on your mind. You just were fidgety and busy. Um, So I could go on and on with ailments that, (laughs) that I had. I'm also bald. Did you notice that? That might be the big one. But when I went to college, I was pretty much a mess. I was a bucket full of holes. And I didn't know what to put in that bucket to kind of stop up those holes. I didn't know how to fix what was wrong with me. And uh, what was worse is that I also experienced a sort of religious revival in my life right before I went to college, which is not the greatest time in the world to have a religious revival because then you're entering into this new place that is unfamiliar and you don't know anyone and you're trying to make your way in the world in this new environment. And I was still working all of this out. What does it mean to be a Christian in this new environment? So freshman year, I decided that I would join the the rowdiest, most profane fraternity on campus, because you see, those were my people in high school. That was who I still wanted to be with, but because of this inconvenient religious revival, it was now because of ministry. It was now because of Jesus that I wanted to be around these people. It's safe to say that I didn't really think that through all that well. I decided that part of that uh, ministry, part of my own religious revival, would be to not drink, Uh, not drink alcohol, which was kind of what I knew from religion growing up in the Baptist church. And so it just made sense that if I was going to be a part of any kind of ministry, which is weird for an 18-year-old to think, uh, i probably shouldn't participate in behaviors which were illegal. And then I joined the drunkest fraternity on campus. Again, trying to hold together two very divergent personalities and existences. As far as I can tell, my family, uh, in doing the sort of research in our family tree, they have always been Baptist. My family was Baptist before Jesus. And so I went to Baptist 
youth camps. I did the Baptist Bible drill. I walked the aisle as a Baptist and got baptized, and then I went to a Baptist college and became a Presbyterian, which is weird. And my parents still can't figure that out. My sweet little old grandmother would call me up on the phone and would ask, why in Birmingham, Alabama, the buckle of the Bible belt, why can't you find a nice Baptist church to belong to? Presbyterian was just this weird term. It was just in this box of synonyms like Catholic, Episcopalian, and atheist. They were all one thing, and I was now one. In Presbyterianism, I started to meet Christians who drank, and uh, they drank a lot. And I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. And I remember the first time as an adult that I drank more than a, a few beers, Katie was gone. And remember that. It's a big part of the story. Remember the hiding part. And I bought a, a six-pack of Killian's Red. That's right, import. I was going all the way, highbrow beer. And I had been, you know, drunk in high school, and it never really seemed all that fun. It was just something to do. But on that night as an adult, I remember drinking, I don't know, probably four of the six of those Killian Red beers. And I remember thinking, holy cow, this is amazing. This feels like home. This feels safe. This feels like I'm no longer bifurcated, like I felt like I had come together as a person. And why would I not want to feel like that? Why would I not want to feel like that all the time? Well, I was working with college students at, the point, at that time, and so in Alabama, there's just not a lot of social opportunities to drink. But I later moved uh, to the Bay Area and then to Oregon, two areas that, maybe you don't know this, are renowned for being drinking destinations. And here, because I wasn't working with college students who I wasn't supposed to drink with and generally didn't, I was with adults who I could drink with and not only could drink with, but I could drink with for Jesus. I could drink with as a part of my ministry. It was sort of the reversal of, of college, and I thought, all right, I have moved to the right place. Well, come to find out, it's relatively easy to hide a drinking problem under the guise of being a, a craft beer enthusiast, having a craft beer hobby. And we arrived here in 2009, and the, the church was sort of the inverse of what it is now. Back then, we had a good bit of money, and we had a, a whole lot of conflict, and now we have not much conflict at all and not much money. And I felt like at the time, for years, someone was always mad at me. Someone was 
always kind of nitpicking what I was doing as a pastor and making tiny issues into gigantic ones, you know, such as me abandoning the faith or we weren't doing this the way they would want to do it, and so it had to be spiritualized into this is a gospel issue and you're not preaching the gospel and so forth. And before they would leave, generally they would leave with uh, these long emails or long letters, which were always fun to read. And after reading them, I understood why they didn't like me very much, because I didn't like myself very much. If, if I represented anything near to the person that they had concocted in that letter, I would have gotten out of this church too. Well, that sort of thing, you just can't live with that for very long without medicating it in some way. And my immediate solution to the stress and the anxiety that I had been dragging around for all of my life with no solution, and now it had been kind of turned up to 11 because of this ongoing church conflict, which was now kind of high stakes because we had moved our family across the country to be here. And we were at that point even more dependent upon my salary than we are now. And so I thought, if this goes sideways, I'm done. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, the tricky thing about using alcohol to medicate stress is that it works. (laughs) It works really well. A good IPA, actually a number of good IPAs for me, it was like a radioactive spider bite. It was like coming underneath the yellow sun. It was like a superpower because all of the stress that just churned throughout the day, I knew that if I could just make it through that, I could go home or even go to a church meeting and there would be beer there. There would be wine there. All of the panic, all of the motor, vocal ticks, all of that spinning mind that used to just drive me crazy all of the stress at work and at home were just absolutely vaporized by good IPAs. But alcohol, you see, works really well until it doesn't. And as Homer Simpson says, alcohol is both the cause and the cure of all of life's problems. And I found that to be kind of true because after a while, the drinking starts to generate its own stress, because at some point, the moral voice in your head, and I don't want to make drinking a a moral issue or addiction a moral issue, but the voice in your head that says, this is not going anywhere good, and you really need to cut back, or you need to stop, it starts speaking to you. But you say, not yet, because the stress is still going on, the anxiety is still going on, the conflict is still going on, and so it's easy to say, not yet. When life changes, when our kids are a little older, when we have a little bit more financial margins, whatever it was, there was enough not yets to keep going, and those not yets begin to add up over time, and then you're stuck. And I was stuck. It's curious that when you consistently dump a chemical into your brain, that your brain begins to like that. And it it pushes back if you begin to uh, limit the supply. 
And our brain actually has this um, adaptive facility to develop and heighten neural pathways that um, basically trigger your reward system. And the alcohol dumps endorphins and dopamine and all of these fancy terms to make you feel like this is life, this is being alive, and i got to have this. And when you begin to dial that down, your brain doesn't like it, and it tells you so. And it, I say it in quotations because at some point, it is really driving the car. Those neural pathways that you've trained so well are now steering your life. Not the semi-rational being that you think of as you. And it, our brain that wants these rewards, is able to kind of co-opt every aspect of our intelligent, in-charge, moral brain that wants to live a good and responsible life. And we find ourselves ignoring that part of us, ignoring the you that's hidden in there somewhere. And we begin choosing the same thing over and over and over, even though it's harming us and even though there's good evidence that it might be harming the people in our lives. And so one thing I want to say to you is that, friends, if if your loved one is struggling with some kind of addiction, it may not be alcohol, it may be something that um, is just a little bit more behavioral that doesn't have such an obvious trigger, their unwillingness to stop is not a reflection upon their love for you. It is, it's not. They're trapped. And these, these adverse uh, effects started piling up in my life. Um, I was putting on weight, mostly in my face. <laughs> I was like Stewie from Family Guy. You don't watch that, I guess. You're pretending you don't because it's church. But he's the little cartoon with a big football head. And for some reason, all of my calories and weight just went to this big, gigantic melon that I have. I stopped exercising and could barely run up a set of stairs without getting winded. I often avoided my family because I was embarrassed about my drinking Uh, I stopped reading and setting goals, which for me was like life. I mean, that was something I had always done. And I just almost completely quit. And I generally just became kind of an unhappy person. Again, maybe you didn't even notice this because I'm pretty good at knowing what people want. And I'm pretty good at turning it on when I'm in a certain setting. And so, In my internal life and in my home life, I was miserable, but when I came here, I could turn on a smile and I could be present and I could be the one that gets the job done. And I wasn't a very good husband. We've always made a, a pretty good team together and we continued to do life together, but there was this sort of distance, there was this sadness that settled in. And I think um, I think Katie didn't know if, you know, she was going get, to get me back. The point here is not really to kind of wallow in all of the negative effects 
and to wallow in my misdeeds, but to give you a, a sense of the depth of the problem, that this, just, this wasn't just like kind of a, a vice. This wasn't something that I needed to kind of take a break from, that I needed to give up for Lent, but it was something I needed to just give up. And saying that publicly um, still kind of freaks me out a little bit. But how does this relatively abbreviated autobiography connect with what we're trying to undertake in this uh, series? Well, I think all of us here, we want to be whole and we want to be well. We want to be our best self. And not all of us are neck deep in some problematic behavior. But all of us are here this morning and we're looking out over this precipice of the new year and kind of wondering how this new year is going to go. And maybe, maybe we're reasonably okay with how 2018 went. Or maybe we have major regrets that we're just determined aren't going to come into this new year. And in doing this series and in sharing what I'm sharing, I want all of us to be able to look back on this year with some measure of of celebration, with some measure of gladness about the person that we've become and the church that we've become and some measure of celebration that We've been able to see God's movement in our lives in some very tangible ways and that we were able to live into this new year with a bit of courage and with a bit of daring and with hope for ourselves or our family member. And to do that, we need help. We need a a safe community to belong to. We need a community that is going to accept us for who we are and where we are at that moment, and yet at the same time push us to be better, push us to change. And that sort of tension is a miracle. That sort of tension is a spiritual dynamic that takes the presence of God's Spirit For a long time, my pastor's group has been this for me, and particularly Katie has been that for me. But I wouldn't be sharing this all now if I didn't think that at some level you were that, that in town is that, that in town it's designed to be a safe place for people to struggle And so I just encourage you to not avoid the critical change that you need to be, you need to see, for fear of rejection. Someone, an individual in this community might reject you, but you know what? That's their problem. They can get over themselves. It's not your problem. And probably what's going on is that they're hard on themselves. Probably what's going on is they don't get grace all that much for their own lives. And so now they're not willing to extend you grace. Well, they're not going to be a very good 
fellow traveler and certainly not a friend because they're not willing to accept themselves and not willing to accept you. Maybe an individual in this community will reject you if you sort of come out, whatever that looks like in your life, if you share something really deep. But I won't. And this, this community won't. Because, because what the hell are we doing here? I can't promise you that. Secondly, that was the first thing. <laughs> Not the whole thing. That little point about we all need help. I don't want to scare you. Um, we're coming to a conclusion here. But we all need help, and this is designed to be a place where you can get that help. And we don't have to do everything internally. There are professionals that can help us deal with things that I can't help you with. I can come alongside you and can provide some encouragement and coaching and maybe some accountability to keep going. But I don't have the training to help you with every single issue that might come up. On the wall above my desk is a card that says, Interrupting pathology is hard. And that's meant to be an encouragement in my profession because uh, I'm confronted with and involved with and intervening in pathology all of the time, including my own. And interrupting that is hard. And by the time that people are willing to share things, often they're so entrenched that there's little that you can do to provide any sort of redemption or rescue. And so I have that card to remind me that it's hard and that I can't expect to hit home runs in every situation that I'm involved in. And what that means for me and what maybe it means for you is that there's no magical insight that anyone can give you that's going to make any significant change in your life, easy. It doesn't exist. Trust me, I've looked. If it did look, I would have found it by now. Because this drinking season wasn't just six months, but it was prolonged. And I was looking. I'd done the therapy. I'd read the books. I'd taken the personal inventory I knew my false thinking kind of inside and out. I could do judo on it, of course. I knew my avoidance strategies. And I kept waiting. Those not yets had added up so long that it was then hard to interrupt that pathology. And I kept waiting for that cartoon light bulb to go off on top of my head to where, oh, now the path is clear. Now I have the power. Now I can do it. It's easy. Everything's going to be different, and it never went off, not in that way. And in 2016, I realized at some point, and it still took some time before I really made the change, but I realized that I wasn't going to get better, I wasn't going to reclaim my life, and my marriage wasn't going to heal No matter how much therapy I did, no matter how many books I read, no matter how much insight I dumped into my head, 
none of that was going to ultimately change me. I had to stop drinking. And so in, in January of 2017, I started um, moderating. I started trying to dial it back and had some measure of success with that. And I would go for weeks at a time without drinking, but I was always thinking about it. And it just wasn't that much fun anymore. It felt like a chore. It felt like a task. It felt like a burden. And so because it was just too much work, before Thanksgiving of last year, 2017, well, not last year, but before Thanksgiving in 2017, I just decided no more. And I make that sound easy, and it's not. And it wasn't easy. But there was a number of months and even years leading up to this decision where I had done a lot of the hard work to kind of make that decision possible. But there was no superpower that I I found to make that change easy. But I tell you what, waking up sober every morning, that's a superpower. And it's like finding a, a cheat code for you gamers out there. It's like finding a cheat code for life, because interrupting pathology is hard, but on the other side of that fear and that struggle and that difficulty, there's new life, and there's really a life that you probably have never expected, that whatever led you to the decision to begin medicating with some behavior probably prevented you before then from living a whole, full, joyous life. And so when you interrupt that pathology and you remove that medication, but you've done that hard work psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, now life is amazing. And I I say that with, with some measure of certainty. It's not that Overnight, everything, the clouds part and the sun comes out and life couldn't be better. Not everyone has that same experience, but no one gives up something significant like this and then regrets it. They may resent it. They may resent having to. But every sober person you talk to is so glad that they're sober because life makes sense like it never did before. So, let me finish. Where is God in this? And I think that I've kind of punctuated the story with illusions to that or allusions to that. And that's partly what I want to explore in this sermon series. Um, because, you know, through this experience, I had, I had prayed about this for years. God, make this week different. Give me relief. Heal my marriage. Heal what's going on in my own life. Bring me back together as a single whole person. And I often doubted that he was present or that he was able or willing to do anything, that maybe my bad decisions was kind of driving him away. And it's interesting because it was my 
It was my secular therapist who helped me to see that he loved me and accepted me as I was before I changed. And I remember the way that this person was able to kind of, you know, nail me in my judo and the way that I would try to evade truth. And although she's not a Christian, she was able to kind of be Jesus for me in those moments. And I was able to see that it was, it was because of God's love and not because of some abstract behavioral code that I was supposed to follow. That was why he wanted me to change. That was why he wanted a better life for me, because he loved me. And he, he had made me to be something that I wasn't being. And he longed for me to change. And he longed for me to be set free. He longed to bring those two people, maybe by then it was many, to gather them back together so that I could be me. Maybe he was present all along, not in the sort of miraculous intervention-y way that we come to expect or want, but friends, he was present in the words of that um, non-Christian therapist. And he was present in the countless times that, that Katie chose to stay. And Katie chose to embrace me physically and metaphorically. And I finally began to realize that the person that God wanted me to be was, was me. It wasn't this person that tried to walk into every room and please those people by becoming someone different. And I've become quite good at that. But I didn't like myself all that much. And I think deep down into that medication aspect was that I didn't like who I was. And it took a long time to get to a place where I started to like myself again. And then I began to have some measure of um, pride, even though that's not a, a really good biblical term, but I began to be happy with who I was. And I didn't want to be that person anymore who was not responsible and not fun and trying to be someone I wasn't because I thought if I can drink, then I can be funny, then I can be witty, then I can be this person that everyone expects me to be. And alongside God, Katie kept telling me, you're really not that person that you think you are when you're drinking, and you're actually a lot more likable, and you're a lot more funny, and you're a lot more of all of these things when you're not drinking. And over time, that began to kind of settle in, that that became part of the sediment, and I began to believe it, and I began to be okay with myself. So I want, I'm finally finishing here, sorry. I want, through this series, for God to show up in your life. 
I want Him to embrace you in your brokenness and in whatever it is you're going through at the moment. And I want you to understand how deeply He accepts you and loves you right now in the moment of your grief and struggle and challenge and failure and shortcoming. And at the same time, to realize that He calls you to more because He wants you to be free. He wants you to be everything He's made you to be, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. And that's my prayer for you, that you can experience that and that this could be a year to celebrate in that regard. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would sink the gospel deep into our lives and into this church, and that we would be able to model for one another your grace and love and forgiveness so that we could get a sense in this community of your presence. And I pray that as people enter into these, into these walls and sit in these pews, that they would be overwhelmed by a sense of safety and that they would be overwhelmed by a sense of your commitment to them and that they would find in town to be a place of healing and a place of new life. And I pray that for everyone here and for myself. In Jesus' name, amen.